I was reading in Psalm 11 this week where King David um, writes about how, uh, it's really kind of a picture is painted right at the beginning of the Psalm where King David is wringing his hands as, as he describes his fear, fear of losing everything, his kingdom, his reputation, his faith because of circumstances in his life that seem to be out of control. And I was thinking um, that some of us may have come this morning with that same kind of feeling as David, buckling under the weight of fear because uh, our world, our own circumstances in our world are falling apart. But like David, I invite you to turn your heart to the Lord. And here's what David says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord still rules from heaven. You know, radical change can either foster debilitating fear in us or it can uh, encourage confident faith. Fear haunts our hearts when we ask the question, you know, what am I gonna do, what am I gonna do? But faith cuts to the bottom line that says the Lord's in control. David moved from fear to faith by focusing on God's power, not the circumstances in his life. You know, some of you are old enough to remember the old silent movies, or at least seeing them. But if you remember, in the old silent movies, there's often a scene where the villain is, uh, ties, uh, ties a beautiful heroine uh, or, yeah, to, the, to the train tracks, you know? And in great fear, she's kicking and screaming as the chugging locomotive is coming down the tracks toward her. But we know that she won't die because just in the nick of time, the hero emerges from the forest and he cuts the ropes and he delivers her to safety as he carries her off into the sunset. But you know what? In much the same way, God's, uh, that is God's promise to us. God will be there for us even if it's just in the nick of time. In Psalm 42, 5, we read, Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God and I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Today we're continuing this teaching series that is running all through the summer. It's on the life of Abraham. And we're going to see today how there were a lot of things um, that weren't going as planned in Abraham's life. And ultimately he had a choice. And that choice was either to give in to fear or move forward in faith. And that's going to be a welcome change for all of us. Let's pray together. Holy God, whose presence is known and celebrated in all the earth, by singing and praying and clapping and dancing, we bow before you today to thank you for your love and, we, and to confess our complete dependence on you. There's nothing in this life that we can trust like we can trust you. And so we come together to praise you for your faithfulness to us and for the sense of joy and completeness we feel when we are restored to your fellowship. So receive us now with whatever we've made of our lives and help us to feel a renewal of your spirit in this service and to be recommitted to you through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Study uh, of Abraham's life this summer is taking us through Genesis chapter 12 through uh, Genesis chapter 25. Today we're in Genesis chapter 15. And this has rightly been called one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. 
In this chapter, we discover the details of the covenant that God made with Abraham, which is the most important covenant in the pages of the Old Testament. Hundreds of years later, the New Testament writers, especially the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, and Peter in Acts chapter 3, or yes, will also look back on the covenant and talk about it as the foundation of the Christian gospel. Since the word Genesis means beginnings, we shouldn't be surprised that there are several important firsts in this chapter. The first use of the phrase, the word of the Lord came, is in verse 1. This phrase was used, goes on to be used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. It's the first time God said, do not be afraid uh, to anyone. Uh, it's the first time God is called a shield in verse 1, frequently this term is used in the Psalms to describe God's protection for his people. And it's the first time anyone is said to have believed. The New Testament uses the word believer kind of as a synonym for Christ follower, but it's the first time we see that word used in the Old Testament. Now at this point, God's fundamental word to Abraham is, do not be afraid. But what did Abraham have to fear? Well, first, he certainly could fear retaliation after his shocking defeat of the four kings of the east. We talked about that last week. Um, the kings from Mesopotamia came, and, and, and Abraham chased them back with his small army north of Damascus, and I would assume Abraham might expect them to mount a counterattack. But his greater fear, no doubt related to God's promise to give him a son, Many years earlier, the Lord had said that he would give Abraham descendants as numerous as the sands uh, of the sea or the dust of the earth. And even when then, Abraham was 75 years old when God made that promise. But now Abraham is at least 85. He's not getting any younger. His wife, Sarah, is far past childbearing age. And yet, even though he has just won this great military victory, nothing can satisfy Abraham and his deep desire to have a son. I think only those who have gone through that experience can fully empathize with Abraham and Sarah. Because there is no sadness like the sadness of wanting children of your own and being unable to have them. Even in this day of modern medicine and advanced technology, we know that many couples wait for years and some couples wait forever. But I think Abraham's greatest fear stemmed from the fact that God didn't seem to be in a hurry to give them a child. How much longer would he have to wait? Why had God delayed his promise? Had God changed his mind and not told Abraham? Was there some problem Abraham didn't know about? Had he and Sarah sinned or was there something they were doing that was displeasing to God? Why was Sarah still not able to have children if God had promised why was it taking uh, so long for God to fulfill this promise? Should they look for another option? All these questions were running through Abraham's mind, but God knew exactly what his servant was thinking. He saw the doubt. He saw the fear. He, God moved to reassure Abraham that all was well. The time had not yet come for this child to be born, but it wasn't that far off. See, Genesis 15 contains two promises God gave to Abraham. The first concerns the promise of a son, 
And then the second, it relates to God's promise to give him the land of Canaan. And from these two promises, we can learn some great truths about God's answer to our deepest fears. There are reasons why Abraham could have doubted God's promise uh, of a son. He was too old. We've already mentioned that. Too many years had passed since the promise had first been given. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Sarah, Sarah was also doubting God's promise. And when you think about it, there wasn't much of a reason to believe. No reason except that God had promised to do it. And the question was simple. Would God's promise be enough for Abraham and Sarah? In answer to that question, God says to Abraham, I am your shield. Now, we should not think of a small shield that only covers the chest area, but rather a shield that stretched from head to toe and completely protected every part of a soldier's body. Such a shield offers complete protection from every attack of the enemy. To call God our shield means two specific things. One, he protects us even in times of doubt, and secondly, he rescues us from danger. Now, recently I ran across the following quote, and it was attributed to an early Methodist preacher by the name of George Whitfield, and it was sort of a partial quote from uh, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, but the, qu the quote was this, a Christian is immortal till our work on earth is done. In other words, uh, our work is never ending, it is ceaseless until God takes us home. But Whitfield took another kind of a direction with this statement as well. And he, he talked about how it meant that nothing can harm us without God's knowledge, maybe even God's permission. Not illness, not bankruptcy, not theft, not loss of a job, not a terrible accident, nor any of a thousand other sorrows that have the ability to afflict God's people. We're not immune to sadness. What happens to all people happens also to Christ followers. The difference, though, is this. We know that God protects us so that nothing can touch us that first doesn't pass through his hands of love and is part of his greater plan for us. And that knowledge doesn't mean that we're not going to weep or not going to suffer in this life, far from it. But it is the basis for the statement in Scripture that for Christ followers, we sorrow but not as those who have no hope. Our sorrow is different precisely because our hope is ultimately in God. Our God is a shield around his people. Nothing can touch us except what God allows. Not only did God remind Abraham of his faithfulness, but God also once again promised descendants without number. And this time he told Abraham to look up to the stars. And here in verse 5 it says, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. And that's how many descendants you will have. Now, they say that you can see about 8,000 stars on a clear night in the Middle East. Astronomers tell us they've cataloged over 30,000 stars, but they estimate that the number may be well over 100 billion. See, no one knows how many stars there are, and that's precisely God's point. Abraham will have so many descendants, he'll never be able to count them all. It's quite a promise to make to an old man and his old wife who have no children and no prospects. 
Verse 6 has been rightly called the, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It contains the first clear um, message of the way of salvation in the Bible. And it says, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him or credited him as righteous because of his faith. Now, there's three crucial words in that statement that unlock the meaning of that verse. The first word is believe. In the Hebrew, the word is related to the same word that we use, amen. To believe God is to say amen to God's promises. It means to rest the entire weight, our entire weight on the truth of what someone has said or done. In this case, God's promise. Believing God means relying on his word to the point that if his word is not true, we're not going to heaven. Why? Because nothing matters in this life if God is not truthful. The second word is credited. It's a term used uh, from the banking world to mean, uh, it means credit one's account. Just as a teller will take uh, a deposit and credit our account with an amount of money, God credited Abraham's account with righteousness because of his faith. And then the third word is righteous. The word stands for moral perfection. The moral perfection that God demands of all of his people. See, God demands perfection and only perfect people will get into heaven. God doesn't grade on the curve. We either score 100 or we don't go through the door. And you say, how can that be? Well, we only find that per per uh, perfection, we only receive that perfection in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel, plain and simple. Abraham believed all that God had said, and in response, God credited his account with perfect righteousness. That was over 4,000 years ago. But the same principle works today. All we have to do to be saved is to believe what God has said about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that he died on the cross for us, that he rose from the dead on the third day, that he paid the price already for our sin, and that he is Savior and Lord and God, and he will rescue us from our sin if we will simply come to him. So let me ask you this morning, how do you stand with God in your own life right now? What kind of account do you have with God? Are you certain that you're going to go to heaven when you die? See, no one who hears these words needs to wonder about that. If we don't go to heaven, it will be in spite of all that God has done for us. And if you're not sure of how your account stands with the Lord, I urge you to do what Abraham did, and that was to believe with all of your heart everything that God has said. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation, and when you do that, God will credit your account with righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And all his perfection will be entered under your name in the great ledger book of heaven. All that you lack will be given to you through Christ. And with that, we now look at the second great promise that God made to Abraham in this chapter. The first concerns the birth of a son. The second promise is of inheriting the land of Canaan. Let me summarize verses 7 through 21 with four statements. First, there is a reminder here of past guidance from God. That's in verse 7. Secondly, God tells Abraham to gather some animals for a sacrifice in verses 8 through 11. 
Then God spells out the details of the covenant that he's about to make with Abraham in verses 12 through 16. And then in verses 17 through 21, God cuts the covenant with Abraham. Now, a lot of the details of this part of scripture may seem a little odd to us because they rest on ancient practices that, were quite, that are quite foreign to our present experience. But basically, God is making a formal agreement. He's making a covenant with Abraham, and covenants were the most common means of making a legal agreement in the ancient world. Since written agreements were not common, most agreements were formalized through a ceremony known as the cutting of the covenant. After agreeing to the details of whatever the agreement was, the two people involved would bring animals for a sacrifice, and after reading the agreement aloud, the animals would be sacrificed and laid out in two long parallel rows. Then the two people would join hands and they would walk side by side between the rows of the dead animals. This signified two things. One, the joint agreement to the terms of the contract. And the second part was a vow that if the terms of the contract were violated by either party, the violator would be put to death. In other words, suffer the same fate as the animals. Now, the most important point in this whole passage is the fact that God, who is symbolized by the smoking oven and the flaming torch, passes between the rows of dead animals while Abraham is asleep. That fact uh, is very significant because it means that God is taking upon himself the full responsibility for keeping this covenant. It's as if God is saying, go ahead and take a nap, Abraham. <laughs> this one's on me. Theologians call this the Abrahamic covenant, and it's the most important covenant in the entire Bible because it contains, by implication, God's plan to send his son to earth. And when the Apostle Paul discusses the seed of Abraham in, Genesis, or in Galatians chapter 3, this covenant is what's on his mind. Here are four, four words that describe the covenant. It's personal, it's literal, it's unconditional, and it's eternal. Therefore, we can say with confidence that this covenant is still in force today. At the end of the chapter, God makes several specific promises to Abraham. He says, I'll give you this land to you and all your descendants. This land will stretch from the Nile River to the Euphrates River, and the tribes living in the land currently will all be dispossessed. Now you may wonder, if you've read this chapter, about the 10 tribes mentioned in the last few verses. They're the Hittites and the uh, Girgashites and the Amorites and so on. And if you want more information about them, you can find them in a Bible, good Bible dictionary or a Bible history book. But the most important thing to know is that none of these groups exist anymore. They've all passed into the dusty pages of history. You can search the earth and you won't find uh, Cadmonites and Kenizzites and Jebusites. They vanished from the face of the earth uh, thousands of years ago. But the descendants of Abraham remain in that land. They are the Jews, the literal physical recipient of the promise made by God 4,000 years ago. Despite the passage of 40 centuries through persecution, through wars, across many years of cultural change, despite some very determined efforts to wipe them out, uh, the Jewish nation remains. But here's the point. God, when God promises, 
When he makes a promise, he keeps it. I would venture to say that the continued existence of the Jewish race after 4,000 years is one of the strongest proofs of 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 the truth of the Bible. The Jews are here because God promised to Abraham that he would make him a great nation. Abraham never lived to see the fulfillment of that promise. In fact, in this very passage, God declared that Abraham would live to a ripe old age and his descendants would spend about 400 years in Egypt for some disobedience. They would go as slaves to Egypt and only then would they return and possess the land. History is truly God's story and the Jews were truly God's chosen people. Nothing else can explain their miraculous survival through all of these centuries. And it started with God's promise to Abraham to give him a son 4,000 years ago. Which brings us back to the central issue of this chapter. Why did God wait so long to give Abraham a son? After all these years, God still isn't ready to answer his prayers. Abraham is old, but he's going to be older yet when Isaac is finally born. Of all the questions that I think that plague the people of God even today, None is more challenging than this question of why doesn't God answer our prayers? You see, we know that God loves us. We know that God has a good plan for our life. But why does God seem to take so long to answer some of those deepest, most heartfelt prayers? Well, let me give you a couple of uh, suggested answers from this story. God delays his answers, I think, many times in order to develop and deepen our faith. He also wants to develop in us the quality of perseverance. Three, delays mean that when the answer does come, no one's going to get the glory except God. And delays that lead to fulfillment also mean that no one can doubt that God has worked a miracle in answer to those prayers. And then finally, stories such as Abraham's are meant to give hope to everyone who has prayed and prayed and prayed without receiving an answer. Because ultimately, God does answer. See, God's answer to fear is not a formula. It's not an argument. God's answer to fear is always a person. That's why God said to Abraham, don't be afraid, Abraham, for I will protect you. God himself is the final answer to every fear of our human hearts. Have you ever wondered why God called himself by the name I am in the Old Testament. Certainly it has to do with his eternal existence, but there's also a word of personal encouragement in that name. Think of it this way. Who is God to you? According to his name, he is the essence of whatever you need at the moment. He is your strength. He is your courage. He is your health. He is your hope. He is your supply. He is your defender. He is your deliverer. He is your forgiveness. He is your joy. He is your future. In short, God is saying to you and me, I am whatever you need whenever you need it. He's the all-sufficient God for every circumstance in our life. Let me wrap up this message by looking at four principles that I think will help move us from fear to faith in our own lives. The first one is this. Fear always focuses on the past. Faith focuses on the present and the future. Think about Abraham. The past argued against ever having a child. Even in the moment, 
that he was in, the present did as well. His only hope lay in the promises of God for the future. As long as he looked back, he would never have the faith to believe in that God would complete his promise. His only hope was to step out into the future, trusting that somehow, some way, God would keep that promise. Second, faith means trusting in God's timing, not our timing. So many of our struggles with fear start right here. Deep down, we fear that God somehow has made a mistake in his dealings with us. And like Abraham, we've waited, we've waited, we've prayed, maybe even for years on end, and we've not seen the results that we want to see. Even though we may have seen some remarkable answers to prayer in other people's life, one thing, the one thing that means most to us has not been granted, and so we fall back into fear. I know that there are people in our own congregation that have prayed week after week for loved ones to come to know Jesus Christ. Week in and week out, we get cards that you fill out, the communication cards. Many of those have prayer concerns on them. Our staff faithfully prays for them on Tuesdays as well as our prayer teams. But you know, sometimes even even in, in our staff meetings, we talk about where's God in this? We've been praying for this person. We've been praying for this need. Why doesn't God hear the heartfelt prayers of his people? Of the many answers that might be given to that question, one answer must be that God's timing and ours are often quite different. The issue is this, is God in control or is he not in control? And if God is in control, he's not early, he's not late, but he's always right on time. God always operates on his schedule and his time, on-time arrival schedule is always perfect. He doesn't forget us. Here's number th- the third point. Faith grows by believing God in spite of all of our circumstances. Sometimes our cir- circumstances make it pretty easy for us to believe in God. Other times we struggle a bit. But biblical faith that rises above our circumstances uh, to lay hold of the eternal promises of God says no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to trust God. No matter what happens, I'll trust him. And then finally, faith is obeying God one step at a time. And I think this principle is often overlooked by those of us who are seeking to do God's will. God promised a child to Abraham and he desperately wanted to see that promise fulfilled. So what does God tell him to do? Go out and round up some animals. You know, he's praying for a son and God says, go round up some animals for a sacrifice. And Abraham must have been thinking, how does that relate to putting a child in that nursery? Abraham doesn't have a clue, and God doesn't tell him, but Abraham now has a choice. He can either obey God, he can round up some animals and get ready for a sacrifice, even though he doesn't have a clue how this connects with his dreams for a child, or he can argue with God and decide to take matters into his own hands. And I think we stumble over that same thing. We... um, But until we have done what God has called us to do in the moment, today, we will never be prepared for what God has called us to do in the future. You see, 99% of life turns out to be pretty humdrum, ordinary, and boring, and routine. It's the same thing day after day. And yet, out of that humdrum, God is weaving an unseen pattern that will one day lead us in a new direction. Faith means taking that next step, whatever it is, and walking with God wherever he leads us. Sometimes it'll make sense to us, other times it won't. But we still have to take the step. 
if we're going to follow God's will. See, everything I've been trying to say in this message this morning comes down to one simple question, can we trust God? Or better yet, can God be trusted? More and more I'm convinced that it is the fundamental question of life. Is God good and can he be trusted to do the right thing? If the answer is yes, then we can face the worst that life has to offer us. And if the answer is no, we're no better off than the people who have no faith at all. In fact, if the answer is no, or if we're not sure, then we really don't have any faith at all. I've decided to personally to believe that God is good and God can be trusted no matter what happens. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't have the strength to get out of bed every day. Let me close with a quick story. Some of you may recognize the name of J. Hudson Taylor. He was, um, about 100 years ago, founded a mission agency called the China Inland Mission. And during the terrible days of the Boxer Rebellion, when missionaries were being killed and captured, he went uh, through such agony of soul that he, that he talks about how he could not even pray. And writing in his journal, he summarizes his spiritual condition this way. He said, I can't read, I can't think, I can't pray, but I can trust. And you know what? There will be times in our own life when we feel like we can't even read the Bible. Sometimes we won't be able to focus our thoughts on God at all. Often we get to the point where we can't even pray, but in those moments when we can't do anything else, we can still trust in the loving purposes of our Heavenly Father. None of us know what a day may bring in our life, but God is faithful to keep every one of his promises. Nothing can happen to us except that it first passes through the hands of God. So if your way today looks a little dark to you, keep on believing and don't be afraid because God cares for you. Let's pray. Father, our hearts and our minds are flooded sometimes with fear, sometimes we're just paralyzed by fear and unable to move forward. These fears get overwhelming. They remain with us day and night, and yet we hold on to your truth. You've told us not to fear, for you have overcome the world. And so we cling to you. We trust in your promises that you will never fail us or forsake us. In moments of fear, help us to choose to hold your hand we know that you have already experienced the most fearful places that we could even imagine, even death itself. And we know that you are uh, alive, have risen from the grave. And you give us strength and courage and hope to live our lives. And in you, all the promises of God meet. In you, new life begins. So you are our Savior. And today we hide in you. We are protected by your love. And we are sheltered by your grace. Thanks be to God. Amen.